1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ortolia baird a host of the channel, and today I'm joined by Paul Reiter and Chad Wellman to discuss their new book, Permanent Crisis, The Humanities in a Disenchanted Age, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. Paul and Chad, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you.
0: It's such a a pressing question right now, although as we're probably going to find out, this has been a pressing question for a very long time. Um, Before we get into talking about some of these questions and how pressing they really are, could you introduce yourselves a little to our audience and and tell us how you came together to collaborate on the book?
2: Paul, you want to go ahead and start? Sure. Um, So, I'm Paul Reiter and I teach in the German department at, at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. I have been interested in the history of higher education for a long time. In fact, my first plan for graduate study was to go to Teachers College and study the history of higher education. And I applied to the graduate program there um, as an undergraduate and was ready to go. And then I decided uh, to take a little break, do something else. And I went to Germany for a while. And then I went to German literature But I always had my eye on the history of higher education and um, about 10 years into my career, I I started to to focus on it, uh, inspired in part by Chad, who was at the time um, heavily into it. And he and I went to the same graduate program. He started the program at uh, at Berkeley as I was leaving, but we stayed in touch and hearing about the work that he was doing was, was exciting. And... Somehow our conversations about the history of higher education have developed into more formal collaboration. I don't know, I can't mark the exact point where that happened, uh, but we started working together on some addition projects, uh, a new translation of Nietzsche's lectures on the German education system and uh, an anthology of sources having to do with the organization of the research university. And in talking about those projects, working on those projects, we developed the idea for this book, Permanent Crisis.
1: Yeah, my name is Chad Wellman. I am a faculty member at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, kind of right in the center of the state. Uh, like Paul, I'm, I'm in the German Studies faculty, and I also have appointments in media, media studies, and history here at, at UVA. And um, how, I think that Paul raises a great question. You know how how did we how did I get into uh, kind of this obsessive focus about the institutions in which we find ourselves, and how did Paul and I come to for, for some time now uh, writing about the university, writing about the humanities. And for me, I think it was an attempt to make sense of, I wasn't sure if it was the dismantling, the complete erosion or the end of the university. It started in 2012. I got to Charlottesville in 2007 um, after Berkeley and in Germany. And, but so, you know, I'd been here for five years. I had published, you know, a lot of stuff on 18th century German intellectual history. But in the summer of 2012, our president, Teresa Sullivan, was, assent- was essentially uh, deposed. I mean, there was, a- there was a coup attempt by the, the Board of Visitors, the, the trustees. Um, and now, gosh, almost uh, 10 years later, it's-, it's funny, grotesque, ironic. I'm not sure what it is. I'm trying to figure that out. Um, but it turned out the reason why the, the-, the trustees wanted her out because- was because she had not embraced MOOCs. I don't know if you remember what MOOCs are, massive online courses, right? So she had not turned UVA into this digital global campus that the board of trustees were convinced uh, was the future of higher education. And so I, I didn't stop writing about Kant and you know, 18th century German enlightenment figures, romanticism, but I took very much uh, an immediate concerted and rather anxious interest in the um, in the institution, which I think I had just taken for granted uh, up to that point. And after that, um, almost all of my work has been trying to figure out, you know, what in, the, what in the world is this institution in which we find ourselves? Why is it here? Where was it? Where might it be going? And I think that's, for me at least, uh, where the work that Paul and I have been doing for several years now um, emerged. It kind of emerged out of these series of crises moments in which the, the past and the present And thus, the future of the university was anything but certain, despite the fact that I and it felt like a lot of my colleagues had taken its perpetual, unending, almost transcendent uh, status for granted.
0: I think we, we needed to kind of boil it down a little bit before we get into that almost transcendent area that you're talking about. So I wonder if we might kind of start our discussion today by thinking a little bit about the context of the book. Um, so currently, as, as most people know, the humanities aren't in a particularly good or healthy place Um but commentators are quite divided as to whether we're facing a crisis, uh, per se, um, in the humanities or, or whether we're not. I was wondering if you might unpack this disagreement over this term crisis for our listeners who might be less familiar with this discussion.
1: Paul, you want to go ahead?
2: Well, one of the one of the things we uh, were thinking about when we decided to write the book was the the shape of crisis discourse and uh, its its particular sources of appeal and why it can get uh, why it can be hard to to get outside of it and the investment that some people have in declaring that now there is finally a crisis and um, we I think are 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 skeptical of <laughs> attempts to come up with some kind of uh, criteria. Mostly they're largely uh, unstated um, for uh, for judging the present situation a crisis. Um, it seems as though people are in a way uh, looking for a kind of compensation uh, for feeling as though their own moment is a a difficult one so they say that well yes things were maybe not so easy in the past or there was things were at some point in the past quite good and then they got a little harder but the previous talk about crisis is overblown but now i'm the one who's going to uh come along and definitively uh identify a crisis and you know there's a there's there's a certain self-importance that uh goes along with that gesture and Again, there's the bittersweet of, okay, yes, things are difficult, but they're difficult in a dramatic way. And so I'm at least at the center of the drama. And I think that uh, both Chad and I uh, have the feeling that this is not necessarily the best way to uh, get to the bottom of what all is happening with the humanities right now. And, um, and we became interested, as I said, though, in the persistence of this way of thinking and uh, the attachment that it has. And we wanted to explore the historical roots of it. I personally, when I think about the plight of the humanities, I try to think in terms of pressures, new pressures, old pressures becoming more severe. Um, I find that to be... Uh, a more uh, helpful way of of approaching the situation than crisis, because crisis is such a freighted thing, and it seems that as soon as it's invoked, um, it can be a little uh, difficult to uh, to start operating in a non-sermonizing mode.
1: And I, th- I think,
2: uh, Paul, you said something
1: that I hadn't thought of before. You said there's a the, the centering of an entire drama around oneself. You know, this invocation of crisis. And I think for us, I mean, that, get, that gets at something that's important for us, which is this, this centering—to to invoke the humanities, to speak on behalf of the humanities, to warn of their decline, to warn of their demise, or to imagine a future in which uh, the world will, will be remade—is is it, it, it's a speech act, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a declaration in a particular moment in time that presumes a particular type of audience. And it's also, at least on our account, it's very much presentist, right? There's a certain present mindedness to the invocation of the humanities um, and a positioning that the humanities address a current moment, but also will provide some, it might be consolation, it might be counter knowledge, it might be um, a a counter vision, a, a counter set of skills to whatever is currently sensed as threatening. So it's that present-mindedness, that, that centering of this moment, this dramatic moment of impending crisis, and the humanities are always cast as this countervailing force. And so when you say the humanities, they, they ought to be defended, they ought to uh, ought to bemoan their decline, it's this, you're, you're bringing all of this, this baggage in. Uh, to this, this moment that is always set over against some present threat or some present anxiety. So I think that this, the permanent crisis, um, it tries to get at that present mindedness, this dramatic speech act laden with so much more than what is even articulated by any one person.
0: And I must admit, I was I was almost caught short a little bit by the book, by how actually thinking about how pervasive this discourse of, of crisis is. You know, it's something that you're aware of, but you you then start to notice it more. And I, I found myself really um, becoming much more sensitive to this um, after reading the book. But The intention of the book isn't really actually to resolve this debate, you're not trying to kind of find a middle ground um, as much as it is to actually kind of entirely reframe this discussion. And you make a really powerful claim that I want to pick up on here that's, you say that part of the story of why the modern humanities are always in crisis is that we have needed them to be. I'm wondering, so you've picked up a little bit on this kind of personal element, this kind of speaking, speaking about speech acts in particular here, but can you explain what you mean by this? Why have we needed the humanities to be in this perpetual state of crisis?
1: I think in, in, in one way, in just to, to reiterate kind of the present-mindedness of, of the discourse, and also I think we it maybe sounded a bit, a bit negative there, that this these can have very fruitful effects, right? I'm, I'm all for present-mindedness. I think Paul and I both uh, are would cast ourselves over and against kind of antiquarian forms of, of historicism, uh, as, as it were. Uh, so there are, there are very fruitful, productive elements to this crisis sensibility. Um, it's just the rhetorical traps that it, it's they set up and then kind of the intellectual and moral uh, cul-de-sacs as it were that they they kind of force us into Um, and that the humanities have always have always been a crisis because we've always needed them to be Um, in part it's because of this negative self-definition right Um, there is in the face of um, an, an absence of an obvious common method obvious common object obvious common set of practices, one thing that can bind previously disparate disciplines, disparate fields, is this sense of countervailing force. So in in that way, it's a cohesion that comes out of this negative self-definition is is one way to understand why we have always needed the humanities uh, to to have the sense of permanent crisis.
2: And it also, I think at a certain point, late in the 19th century, (coughs) becomes part of the justification for the humanities, a a central justification for the humanities. Uh, Something that can be invoked to compete with the world-saving claims of the natural sciences, that the humanities, what the humanities can do is, is solve the crisis of the uh, soullessness that modern society is plagued by, which is in part caused by the very not modern sciences that also claim to be able to do things like, you know, extend life and, and save lives. And we're not, I think, um, against uh, in, a, in a categorical way crisis discourse. We're we're critical of certain aspects of it. You're right, we're not trying to be too prescriptive in the book, although I think at various times we make suggestions about what might be more or less effective in in, in terms of uh, rhetorical strategy for dealing with the pressures that are on the humanities uh, today and the, the, the claim that the humanities are going to help save society from itself that you get people to support the humanities by saying in effect that we are we are going to save you from your uh yourself and your soullessness um without us you know you you've lost your way this is probably not a very good way to to gain broader support for the humanities um but in any case um uh i think that um in, in, the late 18th century, in the late 19th century, excuse me, uh, this this became a central part of the self-understanding of humanists. This is what we do, and they came to rely. We are solvers of this crisis, this crisis that we are at the center of, and uh, this became an important part of their sense of mission, of their self-justification. And uh, there are some certainly interesting things that, that came out of that. Uh, this was a time of incredible methodological innovation that we try to show is related to th- this kind of thinking, but you know, like most things, it, it has another side.
1: I think one way to think about it is what Permanent Crisis, the book, try, tries to trace um, ca- different accounts of the kinds of goods that different knowledges offer up. And so in the late 19th century, it's the natural sciences and they're they're ties to utility, right? Scientific progress, utility, the natural sciences. Okay, what, did the, what, what, uh, what countervailing force is needed in light of that? Um, in the first instance, when the humanities, as a, as a term, as a phrase, are, are used in, in the United States around 1900, um, the humanities, as a, as a phrase, was up to that point um, had almost always been used to refer to simply Latin and Greek, uh, ancient Latin and Greek literature. But around 1900, the, the humanities are first invoked as a countervailing force to vocational education, right? Uh, so, vocation, uh, professional training, simply skills-based training, um, is insufficient. It's inadequate, you know, to the fullness of human life in the world. And so, we need, as is, is this one professor at the University of Pennsylvania, a Shakespeare scholar, in 1904, called it: uh, we need a future humanities. Right. That will be vivifying, that will um, enrich the soul and uh, help us avoid vocationalization. Then just to pick up another instance um, in the Cold War and after World World War II in the United States, the humanities kind of leading up to actually the congressional legislation that established the National Endowment for the Humanities, the big federal agency um, established in the late 60s in the United States. Uh, the humanities were that which would counter tech, uh, technological reduction of society, which, of course, was tied to the Soviet Union. Right? So in each instance, when Paul talks about the these anxieties about the deprivation of the human soul, this reductivism, the humanities are um, conjured up to do a lot of things. Right. There's a lot of promising here, and we tend to describe a lot of it as overpromising very burdensome, uh, at least when I think about it. Um, so, so it's in that sense that we need the humanities um, to do all these things because they're, they're pitted up against um, the very simple use logic of the sciences, of technology, whose goods are readily communicable and easy to understand. And so uh, it's this anxious move to communicate the worth of something else can counter
2: this.
0: And so you've mentioned that you look back then to the 19th century in particular, you see this as kind of the birth of what you might call the modern humanities in contrast to what we see as the kind of the hallmarks of of especially the kind of more Latin classical education. But you look much more specifically actually at at German individuals and institutions in the 19th century. I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about why you choose this particular historical context and a national kind of discourse and why, why is it so conducive to kind of thinking about this much longer term um, rhetoric of crisis in the humanities?
1: Yeah, just, just briefly, I would say it's, it's all tied up, as we mentioned at the, at the very uh, the top of the, the podcast, um, our interest in higher education and the history of the university. Our argument is very much an institutional argument, and it's the, the modern humanities, or the, you could say the humanities don't become modern, uh, until the modern research university, right? This is an institutional question, and it's about the organization and order and institutional form of competing uh, kind of intellectual or epistemic ideas and values. And so for us, when we say the modern humanities, the distinction that I would say we're actually making is uh, the distinction between prior forms of humanistic knowledge, which sometimes were in the university, sometimes we're not, um, but we're, very different from the institutionalized forms and fields that came to be known as the modern humanities uh, as they emerged and were organized within this very distinct institution, the modern research university, which, and your question about the the national element of this, um, which had at least its idealized forms in the 19th century, Universities say after the University of Berlin, eighteen ten, kind of that model of the ideal research university.
0: And so you move then from thinking about the kind of the nineteenth century, thinking about this birth of the of the modern um, humanities, to this question of of intellectual unity um, that comes in the very late 18th century and then the kind of early 19th and how this is then envisaged by um, both supporters of this ideal of intellectual unity um, in the humanities but also detractors. Um, And they're looking for this balance between unity uh, between the humanities on the one hand and, and then specialization on the other. I wonder if you might tell us a bit about how this, this vision develops um, and manifests itself in, in some of the, the ideas coming forth from some of the main figures in your book, because you have a, a couple of, of individuals who who are recurrent, who, who form the, almost the protagonist, we might say, of this story. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit about how this balance plays out in that early kind of period in the 19th century.
2: So one of the governing ideas in the book is that the very circumstances that allowed for the emergence of the modern humanities have always also made life difficult for the modern humanities: um, democratization, uh, institutional rationalization, um, this kind of thing, and um, and we see the early uh, architects of the research university as basically having recognized this. And in a way, we're, we're less making uh, kind of historical case for this idea than trying to track how the idea shows up in their writings. And we think that the, uh, the, that their emphasis on the unity of knowledge rather than being like some semi-mystical romantic trope or like an idealist uh, conceit um, is a pretty powerful reflection of this kind of thinking, and that they realize that uh, the project that they're embarking on has certain dangers built into it. The danger of compartmentalization um, is something that attends uh, bureaucratic rationalization and, uh, and <clears throat> which can easily can encourage an ethos of specialization. For example, um, democratization um, in, in a way complicates the picture as, as well um, because it can make it difficult for there to be a, a community of scholars able to to talk with, with one another effectively um, with a common experiential background or vocabulary. And so um, their uh, constant reaching toward this ideal of, of, of unity, again, um, for us, uh, this is how we try to read it in a various philosophical texts about the university uh, is a reflection of, of, of this awareness of this kind of thinking and um, as I said uh, unity thinking in the in Germany in the 19th century is often dismissed by contemporary scholars of higher education in the ways that you know I, I alluded to uh, romantic trope idealist, philosophy, megalomania, and, uh, and, and we see it as something else. And, uh, and so um, we thought that uh, we would present that as kind of a, a framing moment.
1: And I, you know, I would say, or I speak for myself, I find it actually kind of compelling. The way these, these 19th century figures um, absolutely uh, cast the unity of knowledge as a philosophical project, however romanticized, however not romanticized. But they also were very focused, or many of them, or at least the figures that I find more compelling, were focused on actualizing this unity in an institution uh, where you have memoranda about how to do this, where you have uh, bureaucratic norms and ideals um, about how to, or what this intellectual unity would look like. So yes, on the one hand, you have Schelling uh, delivering lectures where he um, talks about the, 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 the fundamental metaphysical and epistemological unity of knowledge, but also is very concerned, ironically enough, about the shape, institutionally speaking, that it could actually take. And and I think this is where the, the shift happens for us in in, in, the, in towards a modern humanities is how to how to institutionalize that with rules, with regulations. Uh, with disciplines, which are seen not simply as a lamentable effect of modernization, but actually as a solution to a prior problem of, say, media surplus, right? There, uh, there are too many books, there, there are too many periodicals out there, so how do you organize that? A division of intellectual labor called um, academic disciplines that also are bound together in this institutional form called the research university. And I think it's I'll, I'll stop with just one kind of um, maybe pedantic observation, but it's it's pretty crucial, uh, I would say. And, and that is the the primary institutional form that this unity took as an ideal was the faculty of philosophy or the philosophy faculty in German universities. Um, traditionally, these, these arts faculties had been lower faculties, um, kind of subordinate to propedeutics for theology, medicine. Um, and law, right? So, you, you know, students would go through these and then they would advance to where the real educational work uh, took shape. But over the course of the 19th century, the philosophy faculty um, was everything else, right? From uh, biology and chemistry uh, to philology and physics. They were unified in the philosophy faculty that then could um, compete with or be on the par with the quote, higher faculties are these professional faculties. And they awarded a PhD. I mean, this, this didn't happen at the beginning of the 19th century. So the unity um, that we're, Paul and I are saying, this is actually more compelling and significant than, than we might imagine, really played out in the creation and the design, for example, of the PhD, right? This, this, this uh, where all those who are interested in the pursuit of kind of goods intrinsic to, to knowledge and practices of knowledge um, are collected in the philosophy faculty. And they stayed unified um, until the end of the 19th century. And the University of Berlin didn't even divide its philosophy faculty into kind of a natural scientific uh, versus historical philological sciences until the 1930s. So in Germany is particular in this sense in, in that it holds on to this idea, ideal but not simply as an idealist, as a as a vestige of kind of Hegelian or uh, idealistic philosophy, but also as an institutional project.
2: We should also, I think, add that uh, there are mixed motivations here for sure, um, particularly in the the 19th, the late 19th century. So, for example, um, I think early early on. Uh, Humboldt and Schleiermacher and the architects of the research university and the Fichte and the framers of this new vision of the humanities coming up with ideas that sound very much like what you'll read in contemporary justifications for uh, general education programs. Um, They are concerned um, with uh, the possibility of fragmentation in this modernized institutional setting. And on a basic level, they're really interested in making sure that people are still talking to each other. And of course, we still have this goal. We don't talk about it in the same way. Maybe we're in a way less institutionally self-conscious about it than than they were. But our our reflexive attachment to interdisciplinarity is in a way a kind of unity thinking. Um, it's a recognition that it is good if we uh, that there there are things to be gained in terms of morale and also intellectual innovation if we're talking to one another across the, the disciplines but in the 19th in the, in the, in the late 19th century unity also um, became or by the late 19th century universe, unity um, uh, became caught up with status concerns. Unity thinking became caught up with status concerns. And this was also the case for liberal education as opposed to vocational education. And um, the faculty at German universities became very inflexible about the, uh, the possibility of doing education that simultaneously serves different missions, um, the practical and the liberal at the same time. The U.S. educational system has been much much better at that and, um, and they were very protective of uh, institutional structures that uh, allowed them to sustain the conceit of unity and, and, and also liberal education in part because they felt their, their status was caught up in it. And, uh, they were defensive about any kind of institutional reform that they felt, uh, threatened that, uh, those, those things on, on in part status grounds. And that's part of, uh, the book as well. Um, talking about, uh, how status concerns have helped shape these debates about the, the humanities.
1: Yeah, and status concerns that, that take really quotidian forms. I mean, one of, I would say, you know, one of the more immediate drivers of this unity discourse, or why it was seen as as so important, came from real anxieties in the 1830s and and 40s about the Prussian state. You know, as the Prussian state was was growing, it was also specializing, it was becoming, so the worry uh, disconnected, and therefore there was this this need uh, purportedly for this allgemeine bildung, right, for this general education, this unity of knowledge. So that people in different uh, parts of the state bureaucracy could communicate to each other. I mean, this was the explicit, explicit um, this was the explicit uh, argument that was made as to why the philosophy faculty should continue to be funded, why liberal education or allgemeine uh, bildung should be pursued, and so the, the the unity again. It had this philosophical import, but it had a very statist. Uh, import as well. Um, we're talking 19th century Prussia after all. And I, I, those quotidian moments in this discourse are the ones that, um, really, uh, fascinate me.
2: Mm. Yeah. The 1830s, um, that's a a remarkable decade for the, the history of, of higher education and the institutionalization of certain ideals about, uh, liberal education that, uh, Many people are very attached to generally humanists still today. And uh, really, um, there are sto- improbable success stories here since the 1830s uh, was a time of restoration and, uh, and reaction. In Prussia, there's, there's a, I, I, we sound very sober, I know, right now, but there are some funny moments in the book, or at least I think there's some funny moments in the book, mostly quoted material, you know, Chad and I, mm-hmm we're not that funny, but we sometimes uh, manage, I think, to pick out uh, good quotes by funny people. And there's a, I think, a very funny application of the 1830s in Prussia by Heinrich Heine, uh, the German poet and a humorist. Uh, something to the effect of uh, this time was uh, characterized mostly by uh, prison stench, not novels of resignation, police, spies, and yawning. Um, uh but uh, it was really during this, this time that uh, the ideals that the architects of the modern research university, Fichte, Schleiermacher, Humboldt, were able to formulate very. Uh, effectively in uh, around 1806, the time when the plans for the University of Berlin started going into effect after the Napoleonic conquest and Prussia had lost its flagship university, the University of Halle. um, uh, These ideals that they formulated and really did to a large extent put into practice when the University of Berlin opened its doors in 1809, 1810, um, they weren't actually... Formally, part of the Charter uh, initially the university's explicit justification was still basically to like train school teachers and pastors um, and uh, it wasn't until around uh, until the early 1830s that these liberal ideals found their way into the charters and this is in a way an improbable thing because there was so much suspicion of, of higher education uh, on the part of the Uh, the king and advisors to the king, students uh, in the 1830s were associated in the 1820s were were associated with radical activity and there were police spies in lectures and a couple of high-profile cases where uh, professors were stripped of their office because they were thought to be too politically progressive. Um, But in the end, the freedom of teaching, freedom of research, liberal education uh, they really managed these ideals really managed to prevail uh, in part because of the extremely successful maneuvering of the Prussian uh, Minister of Culture who was a student of, of, of Fichte Karl von Altenstein and his right-hand person uh, Johannes von uh, Johannes Schulze um, and they um, in this climate were were really able uh, to successfully, push uh, uh, a culture of, of merit, of hiring on the basis of, of merit, um, research merit, the no book, no promotion uh, uh, rule in the humanities really dates to this time, and uh, uh, we think it's a pretty remarkable moment, and it's also a moment, however, so they were, in a way, this was their response to political pressure to, to push merit, but it had its price, of course, and people started to think that the university system had moved away or was moving away too much from from character formation and that part of liberal education. And so it was also around this time that you have the first modern uh, decline of the university books being written. Academic satire was an old genre, but you have to have the modern university before you can have The decline of the modern university genre. And so that dates to this moment as well. And we try to to tell this story in our second chapter, the chapter after the unity chapter. And uh, we uh, think that it's a a really interesting story with some very funny quoted material in it.
0: I think at this point, we probably have to speak about the Perhaps less funny, but <laughs> depends on the day. Max Weber, um, who is who is arguably the touchstone of, of your book, and he he very much comes into focus later in, in chapter six. Um, although he is is we might say ever present, um, but here you you talk about the responses to a lecture given by Weber, which was called the scholar's work. Um, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about this lecture for those who, who might not have encountered it before. It's perhaps not not the element of, of Weber that people are might be most familiar with. And could you tell us maybe a bit about why it provoked such heated reactions um, at its time?
1: Yeah, uh, people might know it better as um, we translate it as a, the scholar's work. People might know it better as um, the vocation. Uh, science is a vocation. I think that's how it's uh, one of the main English translations. Yeah. In short, uh, this was a lecture that uh, Max Weber delivered in 1917 in Munich um, at the invitation. So this is in the middle of the First World War, uh, in the middle of um, you know street fights and uh, in, in, uh, across Germany, um, and uh, among other things. And it was at the invitation of um a student group to be the one of the first lectures in a series that they had envisioned as i think they called it um the future of Geistige Arbeit, right so the future of intellectual work right and they were they were going to invite uh, a priest or a minister they're going to invite a practicing artist um, a politician uh, and they also wanted to invite a wissenschaftler right so a, a scholar it turns out Weber was the only one who ended up writing and then showing up to deliver um, his, his uh, lecture. And I'll just add one, one other thing. This is, um, and this is kind of the situation that, that he's addressing. These these student groups um, and the group that he ended up um, receiving the invitation from uh, were, were kind of a Hegelian, uh, Walter Benjamin, a, a young Walter Benjamin was, was part of this group on a national level, um, a little bit uh, left of center, um, increasingly so, kind of after 1917. Um, but there was a lot, on the one hand, there was there was an anxiety about the threat to the future of this institution, which they continue to love, that is the university, right? There's real anxiety that um, democratization, that industrialization, war were eviscerating this system of intellectual and moral formation that they had all participated in and expected to inherit. And it was falling apart, overcrowding, um, lack of funding, hyper-specialization and fragmentation, you, you, know, you name it, uh, precarious uh, labor. And they wanted Weber to come in In a way, I think what they expected, what they hoped for was a robust defense and argument on behalf of that institution which they loved, and that's not exactly what they got. got, uh, They got a much more complicated uh, account of how one might possibly find meaning and solidarity in intellectual work in the midst of or even despite this institution that they had, I think, in in a way, expected him to defend, that is, uh, the, the, the university.
0: And so that brings us then into the 20th century, because you have a very long span here, but that's not where you stop. The book keeps going further. And we, m- we might actually say that the apex, really, of it um, is at the very end, when you, you- you have a chapter called Crisis Democracy and the Humanities in America. And this is where we really get this kind of transnational story that comes out and you connect the current state of thinking about humanities in, in the United States, as well as kind of more general 20th century impressions to some of these contradictions um, that you've raised uh, from the 19th century German debates. Um, I wonder, there's there's a huge amount here. It's, it's a vast kind of subject area and a, and a huge chapter, but. Um, if I might take my prerogative as someone who's just very interested in this particular nugget, we might say, um, you do discuss um, the famous very famous Renaissance scholar Oscar Cryla here. And I wonder if you might um, just give us a a kind of an insight into his views on the humanities um, and how they link to the longer history um, of this debate. Why is he such a kind of important um, or demonstrative figure, perhaps, in finding these links between the 19th century and 20th century discussions?
1: Yeah, Paul, do you want me to take that up briefly
2: and then set you up? You 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 go. My I my, I'm still recovering from that long speech I gave about chapter two. So
1: you know you know it, it was it was almost unified. Um, yeah. So I think one reason why Eller is important. Eller, uh, of, of course, um, was a German Jewish immigrant. Um, had studied uh, under among others uh, Heidegger. Um, fled to various um, various universities, various towns. Uh, in, in the '30s, and he ends up at, at Columbia uh, in New York City. And I think more than anything, he's kind of a symptom of a counter, um, a counter movement to what at that point had become the humanities. And I think it's important here: the the even though it's just the last chapter, um, kind of the humanities in America, crisis and, and democracy. Um, it's not really until this discourse. Is reinvented and adapted and adopted in, at least our argument, in American universities that we really have something that are recognizable as quote the humanities. Because up to that, up until the first few decades of the 20th century, um, most of these fields, you know, history, uh, literature, philology, religious studies, even psychology at certain uh, certain points, were rather de- uh, disparate fields. But it wasn't until the 1930s and 1940s that they're really institutionally organized as a coherent project in divisions like the humanities divisions, uh, schools of humanities. These were not implemented until the 1940s, 1950s. Stanford's School of Humanities, I think, is um, uh, is is right right at the turn of the century. Um, all the universities uh, begin to implement these. University of Chicago, I think, 1932, 1933 establishes its um, division of the humanities. So the humanities as a coherent institutional project is, is actually much more um, an invention in these institutions. And so here, Chris Steller is at Columbia, and he, in one way to put it, or how how, how I read him, is making the, the simple, but for me, kind of devastating observation, he calls it, I think in 61, he calls them the so-called humanities, uh, that there is no... Coherence here, other than the fact that they have been gathered together as an institutional project whose interests uh, they might serve are very different from what people are claiming that they they do. And so for me, um, I see this attempt to reinvent and recover the Renaissance um, at the middle of the of of the 20th century. Um, And you, uh, I think Alexander would know would know better than I but at least in the, in the U.S., this, intent, this attempt to connect the modern humanities to the Renaissance is an attempt to reinvent a tradition that, um, I mean, we're always reinventing traditions. And I think what, what Chris Hiller does is to ask um, well, for why and for, for whom and for what purpose do we want to one, gather together these disparate fields and, and, and academic specialties and call them the humanities and number two, what are we doing when we try to establish these uh, cross-centric, cross-cultural, even millennial, reaching back to ancient Greece and Rome, um, connections and, and genealogies? Like, why are we trying to do that? Does it make sense for us now? And in his his now, you know, in, in, in the 1960s. And so I think he, he, he cast a bit of uh, skepticism about that. And I very much identify um, and, and, and sympathetic to that now. I don't know how much it helps make sense of, for example, the current university and the current
2: um, pressures that, that we're under. But that temptation to uh, to try to uh, give the humanities a certain appeal, um, the appeal of, of being situated within a, a, a long and hoary and venerated tradition, that certainly persists and, in recent years, we have seen a number of large-scale attempts to, to do that, basically. James Turner's book, Philology, does that. renz books, uh, History of the Humanities, uh, does that as well. Um, and that's something that we're, that historiographical tendency is something also that we push push back against uh, with our distinction between the modern humanities and and what came before. Um, just to add one more thing to, to this discussion, uh, so in the last part of the book, or in this chapter that you were uh, re- referring to, um, we uh, try to, to add something to this story about transnational uh, <clears throat> transfer. And of course, a lot has been written about the influence of the German university system on American higher education. And I think that uh, with with respect to humanistic scholars coming from Germany, the emigres and and their effect here, uh, the dominant uh, uh, narrative at present is that people like Eric Auerbach and Leo Spitzer and others, Panofsky, um, they helped modernize uh, disciplines or areas of study, really, that were done with a kind of genteel art appreciation approach, to a large extent, bringing German Wissenschaft to this. And um, what we tried to show is that there was also uh, an important, uh, there were there were also moments where uh, German scholars who came over, uh, like Eric Kaller, for example, were very critical of the Ethos of Wissenschaft and specialization on the on the humanities and some of the people who reacted very strongly to to Weber's diagnosis of the uh, modern university and modern humanistic knowledge came over and uh, in a way continued that debate afterward. And sometimes they were brought into uh, to institutions to to be um, modernizers to bring Wissenschaft to the the uh, the humanistic study when in fact what they were looking to do was something else to, to re-enchant knowledge in the face of a disenchanting scientific approach um, and I think that's a, in, in, an interesting and, and uh, at times quite colourful aspect of the sto- of, of the history of the crisis discourse in the humanities in the US that, that uh, really hasn't gotten much attention up, up to now
1: I mean, and, and I think one thing I would want to emphasize, you know, okay, why are we doing this? You know, why are we telling this story? Um, for me, at least, one of the things that I, that I hope we can show is that speaking of the humanities as this institutional monolith, um, it plays into their functionalization, right? So the, the university then becomes a system that has particular functions, right? So the sciences produce useful Uh, technological advances, useful knowledge, right, that can then be commodified and contribute uh, to uh, social economic growth. Humanities do something else, right? They compensate, right? They console, uh, they address moral concerns. And so on the one hand, what this does is it overburdens the humanities with this moral project, right, or this concern um, with everything else, but it also it, um, not to mention, denies the humanities kind of the epistemic status that they contribute uh, to, to knowledge that they create and share knowledge. But it also, um, you know, lets the sciences off the hook, right? It 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 it, it legitimates their disinterest and uh, concern and responsibility for for broader ethical questions. Why and to what purpose do we, we create and, and and share this knowledge? That's one thing, um, uh, but on the, on, the, on the other hand, this functionalization—you see it, for example, um, in the 1960s in East African universities, where they're trying to reinvent themselves as post-colonial uh, projects—and you, you you get caught in these either-or situations. You either have um, the state investing in the sciences to contribute to um, a nation-building project, or you have liberal humanistic education, which is supposed to do what, you know, and that, that, that's the question. And so you get um, into these binaries that, to my mind, um, are, uh, are, are stymied because they're having to work through the same institutional logics that um, the modern research university have, have, have imposed about how the goods of different kinds of knowledge, the goods of different ways of knowing have to fit in the slots that we understand through the humanities versus the sciences as institutionalized and functionalized in the university. So I think somebody like to go full circle to Chris Steller, um, you know, this Renaissance scholar at at Columbia University and his kind of injunction to, okay, let's uh, the humanities, the sciences, the social sciences, those actually deflect from maybe what ought to be our real concern, that is the practices of knowledge, like what? we actually do as historians, as philologists, um, as biologists, and the divisions and how we organize that labor is a related but different kind of question. And once you focus on practices, then I think you get to see the relationships in different sorts of ways. And then you can talk about the ends, the uses, and the goods of those different knowledges in ways in which might resist the total functionalization of them by the modern institution of the research university,
0: and the book then ends on some of these kind of reflections um, about the persistence of this crisis discourse um, in the humanities. But I think we should probably leave a little something, a morsel, for people to pick up um, on when they actually they go out and they find the book in their in their library or they or they purchase it. So. Um, I want to thank you both um, for, for, for being here today. This has been a, a, such a stimulating conversation. And to remind everyone, the book is Permanent Crisis, The Humanities in a Disenchanted Age, published by University of Chicago Press in 2021. Paul and Chad, I'd really like to thank you for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much. It was great fun.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun and it's really, really nice to meet you. And uh, we're, we're grateful for your interest in our book.